Okay, y'all. Uh, I've retitled this sermon. It's not the unknown exorcist. I'm calling it a tough week, right? Uh, Boston bombing marathon Monday. What do we see there? Well, we saw self-righteous, malignant, twisted, um, dark evil. Thursday, the country's given pictures of the bombers, right? That was pretty creepy, wasn't it? To watch them walk through the crowd of the children that they're going to blow up, the moms and dads and the granddads and the young adults that they want to break down to pieces. Uh, And then Friday night, what did we do? We woke up because there was a shootout in the middle of the night, uh, leaving another MIT police officer dead, another wounded. The big brother bomber, we realize they're brothers now, uh, was dead, and little brother bomber on the run. And then how many of you ever been to Boston? First unprecedented in all its history lockdown in the city of Boston. Those of you who have been to Boston know that that's unbelievable. That's like New York City. Uh, and then what happened Friday evening, I'm getting dinner. And of course, I'm always checking the news now, see what's going on. And uh, we watch Franklin Street and Watertown light up as they get the last guy. Now, Nancy and I were in campus ministry in Boston, and we lived in Watertown, and we lived one block away from Franklin. So I'm sitting there going, this is unbelievable. Right down the Franklin Mall, we kept thinking about our ethnic Armenian neighbors that lived above us and wondering how they were doing. Um, A tough week. But then there was more, right? We came home from like everybody else. Our kids started getting texts uh, about something going on in West. Come home from midweek, I turned on the TV, and then, oh my word, you know, we're all in it again. Uh, I couldn't sleep. Thursday morning, I got up. I couldn't get West off my mind. And here's what I was thinking, y'all, and this is the truth. I was thinking, who's going to be there when the body bags come in? Who's going to be there? I went and worked out, and I'm thinking, and I'm like, Lord, jeepers. All right, I'm going to go. I called Shaner. We had a meeting in Temple, a church leadership meeting. I said, Shaner, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go up and see if they can use some help. I drive up and I go to the, uh, where'd I go? Uh, the West Auction Building. Uh, that's where the media was, so I realized that's not the place that you're going to find your answers. So then I try to figure out, where's this community center that was on the, across the bridge? I go over there and uh, I see, ah, this looks like a place, maybe. I get out and I start looking like for someone who's in charge, or at least someone who looks like a leader, right? Someone who's telling people what to do, because it's total chaos. You're seeing firemen. I'm like, where is that? I mean, where are you from? It was unbelievable. Paramedics, firemen from every part of Texas and the country. I find a guy who looks like he's in charge. He's telling someone what to do. So I walk up to him. I said, look, I'm a pastor from Waco. I've come to help if you need me. He looked me dead in the eyes with the saddest eyes, but most determined eyes. And he said, come follow me. Yeah. Walk into a room and he points to a family over there and he says, you see that family? I go, yeah. He goes, that's the mom of a guy named Joey. And that's the wife of a guy named Joey. He was the first responder. He was in there as a volunteer fireman when it blew. Um, If you can do anything for them, I'd really appreciate it. Later, I realized that guy was a councilman and that his son and Joey were ball friends, baseball friends. They grew up together, childhood friends. 
So I had about five strides to get to that family. It felt like a mile. I walked up to him and I said, listen, my name's Jeff Hatton. Um, I'm a pastor in Waco, and I'm so sorry. And uh, Joey's mom started wailing. I mean wailing. Um, Tough week. So after spending the day with them, Friday morning I woke up and I said, gosh, I can't preach this next passage in Mark. I mean, you know I'm committed to expository preaching. Next passage, what is it? Let's go. Batter up. Right? Um, but we needed another passage. And so even our scripture reader doesn't, didn't know <laughs> didn't know until this morning he's got a new passage he's reading. So please stand for the hearing of God's word. You will find today's passage um, in your uh, pew Bibles or your chair Bibles on page 1017, the first letter of Peter, chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. Humble yourselves, therefore. Under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. The Lord, again, we acknowledge that your word works wonders, uh, and we need wonders. We need miracles. Um, We need life. We need power. Uh, We need renewal. We need change. We need forgiveness. We need justification. And then we need to go deeper and bigger and fuller into those realities. So, oh, God, help us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. I know you're looking at that passage, you're saying, why did you pick that passage? That's what I want you to say. Uh, Georgia Settle, the late wife of my mentor, Paul Settle, was stricken with a horrible degenerative disease my last year in seminary. And what that meant was that she was going to die piece by piece. Uh, she wrote uh, before she died this, there will be no broken shells on the beaches of heaven. Yeah. I want you to look at 1 Peter, if you have your Bibles, that passage, and I want you to go to verse 12, which was not read. Um, See the word Babylon there? Peter's describing the church as she who is in Babylon. Uh, In other words, Peter is saying to the church and he's saying to Christians, look, friends, dear friends, you're in exile. You're in a permanent state of wandering. You're in a permanent state of being unsettled. 
You're in a permanent state of not being home yet. You're in the wilderness. You're foreigners, pilgrims. In fact, uh, in the very first verse of this letter, this is the very first thing he wants to communicate to this church. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So far, good. That's what everybody says. It writes God-inspired books, right? To those who are elect exiles. And so what this means is, do you know that you're in Babylon right now? Do you know that you're in exile? Do we know that? Do we know that deep in our bones? I'm in exile. I'm in Babylon right now. Do we know that? Do we know that when things are really comfortable for us? You know, when we're not real, we're real settled. We, we feel like we belong. These are the best times, the happy times of our life. You're in exile in those times. I'm in exile. Uh, when you're most uncomfortable with your life, you're most unsettled, you're most insecure, you know you don't belong, you know that you feel anxious, life is not going good, you're in exile. You're in Babylon. Now, sometimes we feel this more than others, don't we? Good times, not much. <laughs> Bad times, pretty keenly, pretty sharply. But every Christian is in Babylon. Every Christian is in exile. Every Christian is homeless this morning. So there are no broken shells on the beaches of heaven, but there are broken shells everywhere on the beaches of this world. Being in exile is the normal Christian life. It is a life littered with broken shells. And then I don't know what's worse, living in a life that's littered with broken shells or living with this deep, deep, inescapable, uncontrollable, overwhelming longing for a home that you'll never get here. What's worse? This is why in verse 7 we're anxious. You want to know why you're anxious? This is why you're anxious, because we live in exile. We're in Babylon. First Peter is a book about anxiety. <laughs> it's written to fearful, anxious people. It's written to you and me. And this is why we suffer. Look at verse 10. We suffer. So anxiety and exile is normal. It's the normal Christian life. I think we get that. Most of us get that. So what do we do? What do you do in exile? Well, here's my answer, and you're going to be like, what? Because of anxiety and exile, here's what we must do. We must trust well. And what I mean by trusting well is that we must grow and deepen our faith, our trust muscles. In other words, faith like bones, have growth plates in them. And it must grow. Faith must mature. Faith must deepen. Faith must develop. Faith must expand. Faith must travel to places it's never been before. When Steve Martin was home, we had lunch, and we were talking about the struggles that he was having. He was very honest with his struggles, and he said, I have these kind of struggles. And I'll just tell you what he said. But his struggles came from daily watching and holding babies that are dying. 
And I sat there and I, this is what struck me. I said, he is in a place that I've never been before. And most of us have never been before. But he's in a place that his faith must now go. His faith must now go and travel someplace he's never been before with God. And it's got to get deeper and it's got to get bigger and it's got to get brighter in that place. So his faith was in the process of that happening. That's why he's struggling. So here's, here's what we need to realize. Anxiety and exile does that to you. It forces your faith to go places and travel places it's never been before. That's why Peter says, don't be so shocked. You're a work in progress and in process. And I'm going to take you in your life, because you're in exile, to places you've never been before. John Piper said, there are things to see in the word of God that our eyes can only see through the lens of tears. See what he's saying? You will never see the things in the word of God right now that you can only see through the lens of tears. Malcolm Muggeridge, a giant of a preacher in the past, put it this way at the end of his life. Looking over my 90 years, I realize I've never made any progress in good times. I only progressed in the hard times. Martin Luther, German reformer, put it this way. He says, you know what makes a great theologian? He's giving you the secret. He says, I know the secret to a great theologian. You know what it is? It's prayer and it's thinking deeply about the gospel and the one we never put into the equation. <laughs> you want a PhD in theology? You got to suffer. That's what he says. He says this, suffering teaches you not only to know and understand, but also to experience. That's the key word. Someone said, theology and knowledge is like bread. If it's not digested, it goes stale. And so what happens in suffering is that that knowledge, that bread gets digested. Uh, you start experiencing how right, how true, how sweet, how lovely, how mighty, how comforting God's word is. It's wisdom supreme, he says. And then, of course, i got to throw this in because he's my kind of guy. For I myself owe my papist many thanks. The papists were his enemies. I owe them many thanks. I owe them thanks for so beating, pressing, and frightening me through the devil's ragings that they've turned me into a fairly good pastor and theologian. Driving me to a goal that I would never have reached on my own. So anxiety and exile forces faith to travel to places it's never been before. Do you know that you have those places in your life, in your marriage, in your relationships, in your parenting, in your career, in Boston, in West? Do you know that you have those places right now that the gospel or faith has never been before. If you don't realize that, you are getting in the way of what God is doing in your life. Notice I said, we must trust well. Why did I say that? Because of verse 8 and 9. You see the warning there? Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. 
Firm in your faith, the text says. You get this? He says, if we, if we refuse to go to those places that we've never been before, if we fail to trust well, if we say, I'm not going to learn how to trust God in this area of my life, if we do that, we start piling, we have pain, now we start piling pain on top of our pain. We now become fresh meat for cosmic abuse. We now, instead of being sober-minded, the text says, we get drunken-minded. What are we drunk with? We're drunk with anxiety. We're overwhelmed with anxiety. Anxiety runs amok. We're overwhelmed with cosmic abuse, accusations and condemnation from the cosmic abuser. We become fresh meat. Did you see how firm faith in verse 9 resists it, though? Again, firm faith. What's firm faith? It's a deepening faith. It's a faith that's filling in and filling up more with Jesus. And as that faith gets firmer and fuller and bigger and brighter in specific areas it's never been before, you're able to resist mega anxiety and mega cosmic abuse. So what happens is, is that the accusations and the anxiety either sizzle and burn in your soul, drunken mindedness, or they fizzle out in the sea of grace, sober mindedness. Okay, you ready to look at how you trust well now? We get it. We must trust well. Well, how do we do that? Verse 6, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. The meaning here is not humble yourself under the mighty hand of God so he can do something with your suffering, your pain, and your anxiety. Humble yourself under his mighty hand of God so now you unleash him to actually accomplish or move or work in this area of your life. That's not the meaning of this text. The meaning of this text is that everything is already there. All your suffering and all your pains and all your anxieties and your whole life and all the particulars of your life and the life events of the world, they're already there. They're already under his mighty hand. They're already under his control and power. They're already under his throne. Humbling yourself. You're humbling yourself already under him. To humble yourself is to see that you are under him. It's to see that that particular area that you got to go, that you've never traveled before, is under his mighty hand. It's submitting to that. It's realizing that there is nothing, nothing outside of his mighty hand. And when that happens... His power and His control gets pressed into your heart, into your experience, into your life. And that's why verse 6 says, it exalts you. It lifts you up. What happens is, is you start experiencing the control of God, which is what we desperately need. When we are in places that we've never been before and we are struggling and we have anxieties, we feel so out of control. Is that not anxiety being completely out of control and we desperately need control? So we're thrashing about trying to grab some scrap of control, some ability that we can hang on to, some self-trust that we can grasp, some self-treasure or hope, and we can't. 
And we're longing and desperate for control. And when we humble ourselves under his mighty hand and admit and acknowledge and see and in a real personal way, his control is right there. You get what you desperately long for and need. You experience God's control. Which is always better than our control. The picture in verse 6 is standing triumphant. It's a battle picture. Go figure. It's a picture of standing triumphantly on your enemy with your foot at its throat. Here's your anxiety. Here's your fear. I win. I beat you. You want another picture? Go to verse 10 and 11. It's a different picture, same idea. And there you have God's mighty hand personally touching you in such a way that you change. He touches you in such a way that he mends you. He touches you in such a way that he heals you deeply the deepest healing that you long for, that you actually get restored and renewed and you become human and more like yourself and all that you were meant to be. And you actually get strengthened in such a way. Do you see that word established? It's saying that the change is so fixed and so real and so solid, it's established. It happened. You really did change. Faith really got firm in that new place. All right, so trusting well is trusting that you, the particulars of your life and the life events of the world are under God's control. Second, in verse 7, you see that? Here's the second part of trusting well. Casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Casting is actually a participle, and I know you wanted to know that. I wanted to tell you that. Humbling yourself is a main verb. Main verbal idea. Casting is a modifying verbal idea. So we're saying, how do we humble ourselves? We know that humbling yourself is recognizing in a personal, deeply way that God's control is over everything in your life, and particularly this one anxiety or this particular difficulty or at west or loss of love, whatever it is. That's it. But then it becomes down, what does it mean? How do I do this practically speaking? And Peter gets real, real practical. He says, the way you humble yourself, the way you trust well is you unload your burdens on the burden bearer. God is saying, and Peter is saying, my friends, you were never meant to carry your burdens. You were never meant to carry anxiety. You were never meant to carry pain and suffering. You were created and you were made to unload them on the one who carries them. The burden bearer. Jesus is the great burden bearer. He's the true burden bearer. He's the substitute burden bearer. His whole mission in life was to bear your burden. Take your place. Substitute himself in your place and carry your sin. Your guilt. Your shame. Fear. Anxieties. Suffering. Distress. Conflict in relationships. 
loss of your job, explosion in West, shootings in Boston. His whole life, his whole death, his whole resurrection was a substitutionary sacrifice. That means his mission in life was to be the burden bearer. I want you to pick your greatest distress right now. What's the one, what's your greatest distress, your greatest anxiety right now? What is it? I mean, if you're comfortable shouting it out, feel free. No, you don't want that on tape. Here's how you know which one's your greatest distress. It's eating your lunch right now. It's obsessing your thoughts right now. It's frying your emotions or your feelings right now. It is stressing your body right now. So you know what it is. You got it? Okay, the goal of this passage is not to remove that. The goal in the passage is for you to take it and unload it on the one who can carry it. The one who came to carry it. The one whose mission was to carry it for you. That's the goal in this passage. And if you see that, your faith just got firm. Your faith just filled out a little bit more. Your faith just went to some place it's never been before. Because of anxiety and exile, we must trust well. Heather, I apologize for what I'm about to do to you again. During World War II, the Rosenbergs, a Jewish family, was exiled to a Nazi concentration camp. Uh, in this camp, it was a little different than other camps. In this camp, you weren't immediately exterminated. In fact, you could live if you were able to pull your weight in work. It was one of those kind of camps. Looks like the beach compared to Auschwitz, right? Oh, a young boy in this Rosenberg family was partially disabled from birth. He could not carry a full workload. His parents every day were separated at different work sites. So when the day was over, their goal was to rush home to do a quick head count of all their kids and then check the rest of their extended family and see, is everyone here? Is everyone accounted for? Their greatest fear every day was getting at the end of work and wondering, is there, are they going to be there? Is someone going to be missing? Well, the father's greatest fear, his worst nightmare came true. He came home and he couldn't find his disabled son. So he finds his oldest son weeping in a corner. His oldest son turns around and says, Dad, he was taken to the gas chambers. He just couldn't do the work. His dad had to quickly shake it off because he needed to tell his wife. And he wanted to be the one to tell his wife. He said, Son, where's your mom? And the boy burst into more weeping. And he said, Dad, they were pulling him away from Mom. He was screaming. He was completely terrified. He was clinging to her. And she said, it's okay, honey. It's okay. I will hold you the whole way. And she did. She bore her son's burden the whole way. Jesus is the great burden bearer and he bore our burdens the whole way. 
You know why he did that? Have you ever asked yourself, why did he do that? He did it for his glory, we like to say in our tradition. We you know what this text tells you why he did it. Last phrase in verse 7, because he cares for you. Because he loves you. Because of anxiety and exile, you know what we need to trust? That. (laughs) We need to trust that kind of love. We need to trust that kind of care. And if you do, your faith goes places. Never been before.